Hello, and welcome back to the AgTech So What podcast, brought to you by AgThentic. I'm your host, Sarah Nolette. Today's guest is Renee Anderson. Renee is a farmer from Emerald in Queensland. She's also overall just a champion for the cotton industry and best management practices. Renee has spent 23 years working in cotton as a researcher, an agronomist, a Nuffield scholar, and a farmer. And she has lots to share about social license and the role that technology can play in changing the narrative and improving production. We start with Renee with a few birds in the background telling us about her farm. On the home property here, it's 550 acres under irrigation and the other farm's got 650 acres under irrigation. And it's a mixture of different crops, including cotton, popcorn, chickpeas, mung beans, and currently have wheat and chickpeas planted just a couple of weeks ago. So it's looking looking quite good. We did start, obviously, this last season on really low allocation. We're still in drought up here. Uh, had a little bit of carryover and there was a little bit of rain in oh, around picking time, which is usually what happens. As listeners, I'm sure know, Australia has been in a horrible drought, but the impact and duration of the drought has been different depending on the region and the farm. I'm probably a little bit different to most of New South Wales. We've got a really large um, dam here in the Central Highlands that feeds the irrigation farms. And it's 98% reliable for water. So in, you know, the average year, we really do quite well in terms of being able to access water allocation most years. It has been really tough because there hasn't been a lot of inflows. And this last year was the lowest level since the dam was built in the, the sort of late 60s. So it was a very unusual kind of year. We are going into the fourth or fifth year of drought, however, and most of the country sort of along the the Queensland um, central and western areas are extended. The Darling Downs still haven't had decent rainfall for five years, so it's really tough for those guys. For Renee, that's meant they haven't been able to get in as much crop as normal. So we've currently got 50% of the area planted into winter crop, and we had 16% of our summer crop planted. Yeah, so it was um, definitely down. And that's sort of been the last few years. It's been around between 15 to 25% of the area for the last four years. Do you think that as a result of this, I know it's not, you know, there's been droughts for a long time and, and producers are used to in some ways managing for this kind of thing, but are there any things that are shifting that you think will be longer term changes, whether that's practices or technology or anything like that? Yeah, definitely. So here in the Central Highlands, we've come off the back of a uh, four-year research project with the Department of Ag with uh, and CSIRO. We did an early season trial looking at the most optimal place to plant cotton here in the Central Highlands based on weather events and to try and maximise yield and also miss monsoonal weather and really hot, dry conditions, sort of peak flowering. And we've actually moved the planting window from what used to be September, October forward to August, and it's worked really well. So growers are, have seen quite a bit of success with that. And also the planting window with the the three-gene technology cotton, the Bolgard 3, has allowed a lot more flexibility in the system. So we can, can plant between the 1st of August um, right up to the end of December now. And it just means it's minimising the risk of exposure to adverse weather events. It gives us 
you know, a lot more opportunity. We used to have a six-week planting window and guaranteed the day you get the pickers out of the, the shed, we'd have some fairly significant rainfall events here with the monsoonal influences. Yeah, yeah, I was showing um, a friend of mine a picture of of a cotton field the other day and was like, but what you don't know is like it can be quite wet and moist and I've got, you know, friends in boots and snakes and like you look at the beautiful white cotton and you just don't at all get a sense of what might be happening in and around. Yeah, and it really only looks white and fluffy for like ten a 10-day period. So the rest of the time it's um, it's the same family as hibiscus. So if you were to drive past it, it'd just look like a lush green paddock with pink and white flowers through it. One of the reasons I wanted to speak with Renee is that the cotton industry in Australia has a reputation for both being really strong adopters of technology and also being under significant pressure or threat, as some might say, with social license issues. And I wanted to understand how these two things go together and how technology can maybe help. The cotton industry has been innovative for as long as I can remember. So I've been involved for 23 years, um, feeling quite old now. But um, And I guess when I started, conventional cotton was still very much, everyone was still growing it. And I was working on the InGuard single gene trials with the Department of Agriculture Entomology at the time. And pesticides became a huge issue. And the Basically, in terms of a social licence aspect, if something didn't change, then the risk was that we would lose the right to grow cotton here in Australia. So it was very timely with the introduction of the GM technology. And it, over this last two decades, has just changed significantly, like a massive reduction in insecticide use, 98%. And herbicide overall toxicity is really reduced as well. And I think with best management practices, we were one of the first in- industries to introduce the best management program into the into the cotton industry. And then other industries have slowly sort of picked that up. And I think the other thing is quite often it's a profitable crop and it's very hard to be sustainable if you're not making money on your farm and it's very hard to introduce innovative practices if you don't have the spare cash. Hmm. When Take me back to that kind of early on with some of the social license issues. What did it kind of feel like? Like What were the pressures? What did it feel like for growers at the time that that this was such a big risk? It, It was a massive risk at the time. So the insecticide was almost weekly or... You know, every two weeks it would need spraying. So the community was really quite frightened because they'd see the ag planes planes flying around the sky quite a bit. And obviously we're very close to town here, so I'm only 5Ks from town. Mm. And it just puts a lot of pressure on communities who quite often are not sure what's going out of the aeroplane. And um, there was definitely the risk when there was a spray drift incident onto a grass paddock and cattle fed and there were some residues um, that were um, picked up in the in the cattle industry so it almost shut down two industries at once so it just really it was like a compounding sort of pressure from communities there was a couple of in our region we had what was called a leukemia cluster and they it wasn't from the aerial spraying as they were all quite new people to town within a 12-month period but it sort of circulated and generated a lot of discussion and even now 20 years later 23 years later that's still talked about the cotton industry 
Renee mentioned Best Management Practices, or BMP, as a program that drove adoption of new technologies and practices. So why or how was this so successful? The Best Management Practice program in the Australian cotton industry doesn't just cover one module. It's sort of quite a, it's a really large program that encompasses lots of different aspects across the farm. One that I find is really important is the workplace health and safety and HR. So looking after your staff is really, really important. It's hard to get staff on farm. So if you're following things to make sure that they're happy, their health and well-being is looked after, you know, they're being paid really well and they feel like that they have ownership over some of the practices on farm, then it helps to connect them to what their daily life is. You know, they can, they come onto the farm, they need to know that they're going to be safe and looked after while they're here as well because they're, they're a farmer as well. So, and I think it's important that they come along with the program. Do you have any stories of that or any examples, like whether that's for your farm or farmers you've worked with of kind of how that's, how that's worked? Yeah, sure. So um, one thing that I do during picking every morning, and I generally hire backpackers, we're still old school here with the basket picker, the area is not really big enough to afford one of the big um, round bale pickers yet. And so we have a group morning tea session every morning with all the backpackers, we sit around, we go, we have a chat about what worked well the day before, what didn't work well, what areas need to be looked at for maintenance. um, And was there any sort of close calls or risks that we need to address? And it, I just found it brought them all together. We could have a bit of a yarn over a cup of tea, coffee and some cake. And they felt like they were part of the process too. And I think that's, yeah, it's really important that you sort of just sit back and look at how things are going because it's quite a stressful time too during cotton picking. Everyone gets really quite tired. It's very hot here in, in the Central Highlands during January and um people can get hot, tired and grumpy. So having that morning to sort of reflect on what you did and how the day went and how can we improve for the next days. Because Renee has seen this work so well across the industry, she's brought it to her farm as well. And for our non-Australian listeners out there, a smoko is a smoke break. It took me a while to learn that one. We try and do like a smoko each morning. I've only got one full-time employee here on the farm, so it's not a huge smoko. But we sit back and just sort of reflect on is there any area that's high risk on the farm too? Because quite often when you're seeing it every day, you don't really um, take note of, you know, what could potentially be considered a high risk for someone else and so you know looking out the window while you're doing irrigation and counting rows and all of a sudden you're over a little check and you know the car's balanced on a you know a pipe you know just things that we can do to sort of highlight those areas of high risk. These might not seem like big changes or revolutionary insights but really it's these simple easy to implement solutions that Renee says can make a big difference And the best ideas usually come from the team. Yeah, I think the more um, practical and low cost that you can keep solutions for farmers, the more likely they are to implement. I think quite often the biggest barrier is this is going to be really hard or this is going to be really expensive. And looking at ways that they can do like an emergency shower with some poly pipe that they all have lying around in their shed and an old shower out of the donger and something that, you know, just works really quickly if put together to solve that particular problem. And I think we're always looking for photos of things that, you know, meet the requirements that 
are going to save a lot of money and the farmers a lot of time. They don't have to go to town and buy an, yeah. a, a really expensive um, emergency shower. Yeah. Do you have any other examples like that? I love the kind of farm hacks, you know, solutions. <laughs> anything else that comes to mind? Yeah, so um, the IBC challenges, I just um, absolutely love them on Twitter and there's a lot of guys that will cut them down and use them as funding within a, a storage. If they've got an old, you know, everyone has an old shipping container on the farm and um, a lot of them used to have the timber slats in the bottom and it's like how, how do we make this work for a chemical storage shed that's going to be, you know, practical. So being able to put 20-litre drums inside an IBC so that they're not having to reline the floor is a really quick and easy solution. There's so many different solutions out there to make to make things work. You mentioned social media. Do you see a lot of these tips and practices being shared on social media? Yeah, um, I, I love when farmers share their farming stories and they're always really quite ingenious people and it's I always share something that I go oh that's a really cool tip that someone else could use and it's a really quite a different group of people than some of the other social media like Facebook quite often it can get quite negative space against ag really really quickly because I think a lot of people can put their opinion out there with lots of words and it can go downhill really quickly I find Twitter is generally quite positive you know there's lots of beautiful farm photos or oops look what's happened here how can I solve this problem and farmers are really quite quick to jump in and sort of have a have a bit of a say and offer some advice and I find it's generally taken really quite well. My whole Twitter feed is just ag Twitter which I love and most of it I can't contribute to because it's like how do I fix this piece of broken equipment I'm like definitely not (laughs) my area of expertise but I'm really excited to see all the solutions that come along. Yeah. A few weeks ago, I just kept seeing everyone getting bogged. I'm like, how are they getting bogged? And I <laughs> I had to apologise because I just couldn't understand why I was seeing so many, because um, I can't even get near the fields. If we've had a couple of millimetres of rain in this black soil, I can't even get past the sheds. I'm like, what are they doing in the field? But uh, <laughs> when it's that wet. But, you know, if they've got springs, which dryland farms are quite different to an irrigated, we're laser levelled, you know, there's no accidental springs popping up but they can be driving along and all of a sudden hit a a random spring that you just don't know is there and and yeah they share that story and it just it's you're learning something from a different perspective and you have to remember not to be so judgmental because I was I really was I'm like what are they doing down in the wet field (laughs) and all I can think of is the soil scientists rousing on them what are you doing in that really wet field (laughs) Renee had the chance to really ramp up her social media presence when she was selected for a Nuffield scholarship and traveled around the world learning about how management practices and communications can drive community support for agriculture. So my project's looking at what drives the adoption of best management practices on farm and how does science communication and best practice influence our social, social license on farm. What are some of your favorite stories or examples? Like what are anything that surprised you um, that you, I'm sure there's lots, but anything that comes to mind that was really different than you expected it would be? The, probably the most surprising thing that I saw was the wild blueberries overseas, yeah, in Nova Scotia, I think it was. Um, 
they kept talking about these rambling um, vegetative stage because they're a two-year cycle. So I was picturing, picturing these huge shrubs and we're sort of driving up through the mountains um, and they're just tiny, like they're, they're literally <laughs> this big and you walk through and they, they don't even come up to your ankle. <laughs> so that was really quite funny. One of the, the most interesting things that I saw was in California was a rice farmer. It was um, just a really impressive setup and similar to cotton, rice can cop a bit of a hiding in terms of perceptions and this farmer sat down with his whole entire crew and they said, Tommy, what are the biggest risks to our farming to our farming business? I want the 30 worst things that you could possibly think of to happen. And they, every single person, so whether it was, you know, the person who swept out the sheds, everyone had to write a list of things that they thought they could tackle. And they picked the top five and they worked with the state government, the Natural Resource Management Group, the Fisheries Department, uh, California Trout, and they came up with a plan to time um, post-harvest the retting of the, the breakdown of the fields to set up the rice paddies, to time with the migratory birds they introduced plankton into the fields as well. So the birds had feed in those rice paddies and then they were releasing that nutrients and setting up fish homes within the the waterways so that they were reintroducing the salmon species into the riverways. It was just really impressive how, how much thought went into the whole process and, you know, how they could see where they needed to go in the future with, you know, irrigation delivery had changed the whole life cycle of the fish and it was a really important thing for them to focus on reintroducing the fish species, the native mm. salmon back into their waterways, yeah. creating homes and... Mm. Whether for innovative new systems, social license, farm safety or ag tech, this idea of getting staff buy-in and the whole team coming up with ideas for changes and improvements is something Renee has seen work again and again. And I really noticed that with the BMP program in the cotton industry, it started with growers who wanted to fix some issues and then instead of government stepping in, because potentially the risk was government would step in, put a whole heap of legislation in place and a lot of red tape to manage what we were doing and for everyone to get together and then write up a program on how we were going to self-manage and then see such a success with the program. And I see that in a lot of different ag industries. You know, if, if it has been brought in without that grassroots intervention and discussion, quite often it's not, it doesn't have that practical feel to it all at all. Another theme for Renee was the importance of good communications, but this can be easier said than done. Uh, so for me, I'm not a public speaker at all. It actually, it terrifies me. But I I guess I watched and learned over the last few years some really good science communicators. And I thought, well, how can we as, as an industry and as farmers, because I, I thought it's really important for farmers to get their voices out there because I felt like there was other people telling my story that didn't connect with what I was doing on the farm about cotton and they were telling me I was using all this water and using all this pesticide. And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and I just felt, well, I need to have a say in what I'm doing as well. And I just thought, you know, who's doing a really good job in this space and what can we learn from other people? 
And I found the ones that really connect online with their audience are the ones, they're so polite, you know, always very polite and kind. And even if they disagree, they're not going to have a Barney. Um, and there's no, they're not getting defensive. They, they'll disagree, but in a really polite way. And it always came with really great infographics with a snapshot of information as well mm. because people learn in different ways. So there's the visual and the, you know, I'm not that great at, as we were discussing the other yeah. day, I have to take a lot of notes if I'm listening to something and then I have to read it later to yeah. sort of for it to sink in. So having that cross multimedia type experience for people yeah so that they can learn and sort of see a snapshot really quickly. Hmm. How do you think about, like, I, I can empathize with the the challenge of, okay, so you have to farm and you have to farm, you know, you keep, keep on top of the technology and stay up with best practices and manage weather and uncertainty and run a business. And now you also have to get on social media and tell this story and do it in multiple media ways. And you may or may not get a premium. And like, that seems like a big pill to swallow. What's your, I don't know, kind of response to that? Um, don't, <laughs> don't be on there all the time because it's really easy for an hour or three to disappear. So I really pick and choose the times and I quite often, I'll only jump into a discussion if I'm really passionate about it or if I feel like there's something that I can add value or some information. If it's not really anything that I'm across, like I really don't know very much about animal production. I could probably drop a link in about, you know, emissions or something like that, but it's not something that I'm going to participate in if I don't, if I'm not across it. And I really pick and choose the times where I know the people who I could probably learn something will be online as well. And just making sure that it's not all of your day because it's mm. very, yeah, very quick to lose lots of hours in the day. And beyond just the time it takes, putting yourself out there on social media can be really hard, especially when you're talking about tough issues like social license. A lot of my friends are like, oh my goodness, you're so brave. I can't believe you could say that and then be hammered and not take it personally. But that has taken me a really long time to not take things personally. And I'm able to go, oh, well, it doesn't matter. I don't know that yet. That That is very hard to put yourself out there and yeah. have an opinion or a, not even an opinion but just make a statement that other people disagree with. And mm -hmm. a lot of people can be quite personal when they attack. My DMs um, can be really quite awful from people who really disagree with cotton being grown in Australia and, they, yeah. you know, I'm not even connected to the Murray-Darling Basin and I'm told I'm a water thief. Um, um, it's really tricky. So um, sometimes I think you just have to take a step back if you're feeling really, really overwhelmed. That's always my advice. And quite often people will send me a message and go, can you respond to this? I really want to say that. So, mm. And I can do it really quickly without thinking about it. So yeah. it, it doesn't take a lot of time for me anymore. It used to be an, uh, an emotional, like a really big emotional thing mm. to respond, whereas now it's like, yeah. yeah. It's like a bit of a muscle, I guess. You kind of build it up and it gets stronger and then you're better at doing it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I really only focus on two. So I only, I do have an account across all of them. I have an Instagram account. I think that has six photos from 10 years. <laughs> I just forget that I have it, you know, and I sort of jump on LinkedIn a couple of times a year as well, if there's something that I think is really valuable to my work. So generally Twitter and Facebook. 
Do, was there anything you saw overseas that you said, oh, I definitely want to get one of those or we've got to bring that to Australia or that would really apply here? There was heaps of really amazing apps that did a really great job of connecting farm practices with just like a photo doing this, here's the seed, here's this, and and it was just uploaded and it just recorded everything. I found the, the tech adoption overseas was just unbelievable and I think it's to, to do with their connectivity. Everywhere I went they had amazing mobile networks and mm. uh, internet connectivity. So in Indonesia they, the farmers have an online marketplace and they sell and trade almost like Amazon, their, their cattle or their corn and they sort of put up whatever traits it is about that particular thing and then it goes onto the marketplace and it's a really transparent transaction and it was just so quick and easy I'm like wow that's amazing and you know in the US in the middle of nowhere they just have apps to turn on their irrigation you know here I'm sort of like trying to ring someone and go can you hear me (laughs) Um, yeah just I think the connectivity in most of the world sort of has really Mm. driven that that high level of tech when you kind of reflect on what you saw overseas and, and your work in the cotton industry, what do you, what's your kind of vision of, of hope for the future of, of, I guess, Australian cotton in, in the next, I don't know, five or 10 years? What are you really excited about? I definitely think the tech, the ag tech will just continue to drive what we do and the efficiencies are continuously improving, whether it's through plant breeding or just recognising uh, through sensors when exactly a plant needs water and for how long and, you know, it's switching off automatically. I just see that sort of technology just going ahead in leaps and bounds and there's lots of different companies working in that space because I think the larger, uh, the more that we go into variable climate with the climate change you know we d- we're going to have really extreme weather events so we'll have lots of water or no water and using the resources that we have really efficiently is going to be um, really under the spotlight over the next few years. The other thing that Renee is really excited about is post-Farmgate technologies and what all of us as consumers will hopefully be seeing and using from natural fibers in the future. One of the things that I really love with the natural fibres is the technology driven, the like post farm gate, the new technologies in farm to make the natural fibres more usable and more wearable. Like I really love that side of it. And also they're fabulous for biodegradable. There's no microplastics going into the environment and they're reducing, you know, the impact with the dyes and but they're doing some really cool treatments to make things, people's lives easier at the other end so that you can wear a shirt and, you know, it's not as smelly by the end of the day or, you know, that it's easier to iron in the morning if you've got to go to work in a business suit and things like that. Mm. Um, So I'm really passionate about that side of the industry as well. And I think it'll be great to see new efficiencies and technologies driven in that side of the the post-production. Mm. Totally. Yeah. I think we're seeing that a bit with wool and the kind of performance wool and, and um, you know, whether it's for active wear or, you know, that kind of yeah performance industry. And I think we'll see more of it in cotton as kind of natural fibers and yeah, proving the functionality, but environmental benefits as well. 
Yeah, yeah. I got to spend the day at Cotton Inc. in North Carolina and it like the amount of research that goes into the usability of the fibres and they test every sort of fibre and it was just amazing walking down the hallways and sort of feeling how they will treat a fibre to make it have much more functionality. It was, it's just really fascinating. Maybe last question for you um, in having thought so much about best management practices and, and kind of adoption, what, if any, advice would you have for technology developers, like anyone anyone building technology in terms of how they could think about making sure it's useful for farmers or, or does get adopted? Yeah, the most important thing is talking to farmers because developing a piece of tech that you think is a great idea doesn't necessarily mean it's going to connect and work well on the farm. So having those those two people in a room brainstorming is so important practicality and being and functionality too you know in areas of low connectivity it's Mm. really got to do a a great task Um, and I think being able to utilize tech that makes our lives a lot easier because I find even though the tech improves I feel like things get busier and busier each year even though you know the the gear is a little bit bigger now so we're less time in the tractor because We're driving stuff that's bigger. So stuff just to, yeah, make things run a lot smoother. Yeah, Mm, smooth out some of those. Mm. Definitely. It's funny, actually, like the, um, I think there's more recognition that talking to farmers and talking to customers and kind of doing that collaborative development so important. And yet it's yeah. still really hard to do. Like I think a lot of the same maybe vocal farmers that are out there on Twitter and, and kind of talking about innovation get their shoulder tapped all the time versus yep. there's others who, who don't. And for, you know, you don't want to only talk to the same 20 farmers that are the loudest yeah. ones because yeah. they're not maybe farming the same way as, as some of the others in the space who aren't as loud, but they're the ones yep. that get the phone call. Yeah, yep. And I find it's the quiet ones that usually have engineered something really amazing on the farm that works just beautifully for a problem that they have been trying to solve for ages. So I guess connecting with grower groups and individuals and having a chat around a barbecue is usually the best way. Love it. More of that kind of social connection as well. I mean, it's actually been a theme kind of of various things you've said that it ends up being more about the people, like whether it's the people on your team that are recommending changes or the people yeah. overseas that you're connecting with or on the other side of a, a Twitter post um, or on the other side of the technology, like that's kind of what it comes down to. Yeah. Yeah. That was the probably the biggest learning that I had during my Nuffield journey. And it was from one of the Kiwi fellows, um, Hamish, who we traveled with. I was in a group of 10. And it, it really is everything that we do is about the people. We met the most amazing people. And, you know, sometimes there's situations where like really tiny little farm, but you connect with these people and you just listen to their story, it always comes back to the people. So even in a, um, a tech-driven world, there's, there's someone behind that making it and developing it and they need those connections so that it works really well. Where, um, if people want to learn more about what you're up to or what you think about um, cotton and social license and all of these issues, where can they find more about you and from you? Um, so I am Farmer Renee on Twitter. And I do have a Nuffield Scholarship page on Facebook as well. And it's just Renee Anderson, Nuffield Scholar. Cool. I will link both of those in the show notes. Um, But thank you so much for agreeing to have a chat. No worries. Thank you. 
Hey guys, Sarah here again with some final comments. This conversation with Renee and some of the follow-ups that we had after really got me thinking. Renee and I were talking about science communicators uh, in agriculture so that I could link Renee's favorites to the show notes. And she told me that her favorite science communicator just quit social media because of racism. Now, in this episode, Renee and I talked about how social media, and especially ag Twitter, is largely a positive place where people can share inventions and and tips, but that's not always the case. The incident Renee was referring to was some pretty horrific racist comments from some farmers, and then various researchers, science communicators, and other farmers calling them out and shaming them. And then all of the normal angry yelling and personal insults that you would expect would would come next. And I guess all this got me thinking about our role as a podcast, as a company, and as people in the ag industry and talking about the ag industry in today's world amidst the protests and, and the social unrest. And... You know, this is still a work in progress, but where I've landed, at least for today, and what I wanted to share with you guys is that I love working in agriculture, but ag definitely does have some social license issues. Now, some are environmental, and and these get talked about a lot, but some are also around acceptance of outsiders, and even in the worst cases, racism. And this is not okay, and we do have to call it out, and we do have to do better. Talking about this stuff isn't easy, and yet I know talking alone isn't good enough. But hopefully, starting to bring these issues to the forefront can raise awareness, can catalyze action, and ultimately can lead to change. So I've included some links in the show notes to keep this conversation going. There are other people in ag who are talking about these issues and other people who are taking action. If you have ideas, other links, or perspectives to share, I'd love to hear them. Thanks, guys, as always, for listening, and until next time, be safe.